0: Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations, the power the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the tutors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I am Deb Hunter, and today I want to welcome our very special guest, Dr. Linda Porter dr Porter has a ba and a PhD in history from the University of York you have a very fascinating life dr Porter could you go ahead and give us some insight into what your career has been about
1: I'm sure devin thanks very much for having me on the show um yeah I i I think what you've touched on there is 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 interesting because I, I suppose my career path has not been typical uh, at least not a people with an academic background, because I've, I've had to, for various reasons, reinvent myself a few times. But I, I did start out um, as an academic historian, um, lecturing in various universities in New York, including Hunter College and um, down on uh, Columbus Circle, where Fordham University is. Uh, And I I had a great time doing it, but we returned, well, in my case, I returned, my my husband, who's from the American South, from Arkansas, had not lived in in the UK before. But we came back over here because neither of our careers were really developing as we would have liked. And we had a four-year-old daughter who, to be honest, we couldn't afford to have have, uh, educated in private school in New York. And I was somewhat anxious about the um, quality of some of the public schools around where we lived in Brooklyn. So we came back to the UK uh, and because I I needed uh, to support the family financially, I left the academic world because I couldn't get a job in uh, England at the time. And I went into the corporate world where I worked for nearly a quarter of a century for um, the major telecoms company, BT, British Telecom. And I left to take early retirement in my early mid-50s and decided I would go back to research and writing, which has taken me basically to to where I am now. I've written five books. The the first was on Mary I, um, the first Queen Regnant of, of England. The next one was on Catherine Parr, the sixth wife of Henry VIII. Uh, the third one was uh, um, it was actually quite a groundbreaking study and there really isn't another book like it on the rivalry between the Tudors and the Stuarts in the 15th and 16th centuries. Uh, then I wrote, moved on to the Stuarts in, in England, or in Greater Britain, I should say, and wrote a book on the children of Charles I and their experiences in the, the civil wars of the mid 17th century. And my most recent book, which was a fun one to write, was on Charles II's mistresses. I am currently writing, I've gone back, I didn't intend to go back to the Tudors, I have to say, but for various reasons I have done, I'm writing a book on about Margaret Tudor, Henry VIII's elder sister, who isn't very well-known and where she is well-known has got a totally unjustified uh, reputation as an oversexed whinger who was only interested in in, uh, apparel and fine dresses. So that's, that's really me, I guess, Deb. Um, I spend most mornings at the moment writing on my book. I, I write quite fast, but because it demands a lot of concentration, I can't do it for more than about three hours at a time. Uh, and if I do that, that's fine. Uh, but beyond that, I'll, I'll just start to, to sort of wander in my mind. And that doesn't make for, for good writing. I like writing, but I think everyone gets to the point where they are a bit weary of it after a while, and it, it's it's nice t- to have a break. Uh, what I wanted to talk about today with you uh, was really a topic which I think is underexplored, and it is an element in a number of my books, and will particularly come to the fore in the book I'm writing at the moment about Margaret Tudor, and that topic is rivalry amongst the siblings, sibling rivalry in the Tudors. And we hear an awful lot about Henry VIII's wives, about other leading personalities of the period, but we don't talk very much about the, the um, inter-family rivalries, if you like. And these are significant because they play into a much wider background and context of uh, what was happening not just in Great Britain and England and Scotland and and Ireland, but also what was happening in the wider European context. Uh, And I I think it's in that sort of area that I I just like to to say a few words, really. The um, sibling rivalry amongst the Tudors begins actually with Henry VIII and his elder sister, Margaret. Uh, And it's, The way it played out and its implications, I think, deserve to be better known because they are very interesting. And they show you uh, perhaps yet another side of Henry VIII that that is not quite so well known. Uh, But Margaret was Henry's elder sister. She was two years older than him. And of course, she, like him, grew up as a small child at Richmond Palace um, outside the, the centre of London. Uh, And with the expectation that their elder brother, Arthur, who was then away being trained for kingship at Ludlow Castle and the Welsh borders, they grew up with the expectation that he would be heir. Uh, And later on, King. And so when he died very unexpectedly within a few months of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, at which both Henry and his sister had played a a role, Henry in escorting um, Catherine throughout the ceremony, and Margaret subsequently dancing with Henry at what we would term the reception, I suppose, subsequently. Um, But they were both very much on show and on parade there, and must both have been very shocked when Arthur died so unexpectedly. This plummeted Henry into the role, of course, of of his father, Henry VII's heir. Uh, Margaret, um, not long after her brother's death, was married by proxy to King James IV of Scotland, I think it is perhaps without sounding condescending, I hope, worth reminding people, um, let alone people who live in the south of England, that Scotland was a separate country at that time with the Stuarts on the throne where they had been since the late 14th century. And they were an established and highly successful dynasty, uh, in strong contrast to the Tudors, who at the time that Margaret was married to, to James IV, were very much the, the sort of Johnny-come-latelys of English history. So uh, Margaret was married, was betrothed as soon as she had passed her 12th birthday. And uh, she didn't go north to meet and cohabit with her husband for another year, Uh, partly um, because she was considered too young. Uh, A lot of people seem horrified and and appalled by the idea that that one could be married at the age of uh, 12. Uh, I mean, Margaret was the elder daughter. uh, There was a younger sister, Mary. There had been various other children in between who died in infancy or shortly after birth. Uh, But the two girls, Margaret and her younger sister, Mary, and Henry were eventually the only surviving children of Henry VII. Uh, And Margaret's marriage to uh, the Scottish King was an important part of of Henry VII's wider diplomacy. The relations between the two countries were always, if not outright hostile, bordering on hostilities. The borders were a lawless area which saw a lot of violence uh, and, and fighting and raids. And Henry Seventh uh, was a man who really didn't like war and who wished for peace. And he, he saw his daughter's marriage to James IV of Scotland as a, a possible way of, of, at least for the time being, ensuring uh, better relationships between the two countries. It is said, though, I've never found any direct evidence for this. I think it was reported uh, by some foreign ambassadors, whom, as we know, are often the sort of people who like tidbits of gossip. It, It makes them look as though they have their ears to the ground more than perhaps they do. It was reported that Henry VII resented the fact that once his sister was betrothed to James IV of Scotland and was known as the Queen of Scots, she took precedence over him. Um, And if there is some truth in that story, it might explain quite a lot of his subsequent attitude towards her, I think. Uh, But anyhow, the the two Tudor siblings parted company when when, um, Margaret was 13 and her brother just a couple of years, her junior, and she went north on what was the most splendid progress of the early Tudor era, in fact, perhaps the most splendid Tudor progress of all in the in the sixteenth century, uh, with a huge train of, of people um, she had to change clothes whenever she went into a new city where she was, of course a celebrity uh, and It must have been quite a uh, an ordeal for a girl that young she eventually crossed the border into Scotland and was married in August 1503 formally to, to James IV and became his queen consort there, there had been other english queens consort in scotland but in general the scots tended to marry either into scandinavian or french royal families and margaret as an englishwoman wasn't necessarily welcome uh, and of course she and her brother lost sight of each other for a number of years but The rivalry between them develops really during the time of Margaret's marriage to James IV because James was the most extraordinary man. He's one of my favourite figures of this late medieval period a polymath who was a man of immense charm. He dabbled in everything from from dentistry, which must have been awkward if you were a noble with bad teeth. I think we would have been advised to keep your mouth shut, probably. Uh, But he dabbled in everything from dentistry to mathematics. He was uh, terribly interested in shipbuilding and the latest technological developments for warfare. He spoke various foreign languages. He kept Uh, A small, obviously, because his country was not rich, but a a glittering and truly Renaissance court with a a great deal of cultural activity. Uh, And he appears to have been one of the most charming of husbands that anyone could wish for. He was also constitutionally unfaithful and had numerous mistresses before Margaret even married him. And no doubt she found this a contrast with her parents very happy family life but she seems to have put up with it and James did a great job of training this this little English girl who came to him you know a proud princess but half formed certainly as a woman he he trained her to be um a gracious and effective queen consort and it was a role that she took too well and handled with aplomb despite being horribly homesick when she first got into Scotland but for um Many years, the couple could not produce a child that lived. And this is very similar to what happened to Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, of course. But the the contrast is seldom, if ever, made. And the, the difference, of course, was that Margaret was very much younger than her husband, whereas Catherine of Aragon was six years older than hers. So Margaret was 16 when she produced her first child, and it was a son, and there was great rejoicing, but he only lived for about a year. So like her brother, she had had lost children. She lost one other son who lived for a short time, um, a couple of daughters at all, soon after birth, until the year 1512, when she finally managed to produce a son, Prince James, who gave every indication of living, and indeed he did. Now you've got to remember that by that time, Catherine of Aragon and Henry had been desperately trying for a child and had, you know, miscarriage after miscarriage, a child, uh, Prince Henry, who died within six weeks of birth. So you can see that there is on a personal level this kind of rivalry. You know, who is going to produce the first living male heir? And the prize goes to Margaret, probably much to Henry's chagrin, I suspect. Uh, And meanwhile, his relations with her husband were breaking down. Um, The the two never met. But um, James IV resented Henry's pretensions to um, a sovereignty over Scotland. And he was allied um, with the traditional Scottish ally, the the Kings of France. Uh, So there was not just on a sort of personal family level of competition, but also a a very real, within the wider international context, a a feeling of competitiveness and um, difficulty that was was beginning to poison what was always a rather difficult relationship. While Henry VII lived, um, relations between James IV and his father-in-law had been reasonably good. They were not good between the two brothers-in-law. And uh, eventually, of course, James IV was drawn into European war when Henry VIII and a number of his European allies attacked Louis XII of France. Henry moved over to France with an army and fought a few rather silly little battles over there, which didn't amount to anything, but which he made a great deal of. And James IV, following the um, treaty obligations that he had with France, invaded Northern England. His idea, if he had managed to bring it off, was probably to get as far as York and then establish a sort of separate northern kingdom. Margaret supported her husband throughout their marriage uh, and took his part against her brother. She resented that Henry had never paid her the the monies that were due to her from her father's will. And he'd stopped her receiving um, various goods and furnishings that her brother, Prince Arthur, had left her in his will. So these were bones of contention. I mean, Henry was deliberately uh, obstructive about this sort of thing, and his sister, needless to say, felt it very badly. Uh, And she was always a, a supportive wife to her husband. But, of course, tragically, James IV died at the Battle of Flodden, which was one of the greatest and most serious, I think, unknown battles perhaps in British history. If anyone is ever in the north of England, it is well, well worth visiting the site, which is brilliant. Uh, And you can get a feel there of the the terrible slaughter of the Scots that that took place there. So Margaret was left a widow uh, at the age of 23 with one surviving son and pregnant with another. And it would turn out that that the last gift that James IV had given her was, in fact, uh, another son. And she had also been left as regent um, in James's will, with one provision that she was not to remarry. And after about a year, she found her situation as a young Englishwoman in charge of a difficult country as Scotland was, because its nobility were fractious um, and resented probably any woman's rule, but particularly the the rule of a female Tudor. And she made what was, in re- retrospect, a terrible mistake. She married again to, to the, the Earl of Angus, Archibald Douglas. Uh, and admit, right away, the, uh, the Scottish lords removed her from the regency and brought in a more distant cousin who was born in France, John Stuart, Duke of Albany. Uh, Margaret appealed to her brother for help from time to time at this point, but he never really gave her anything. He came up with harebrained schemes to kidnap her two sons when the younger one was born and bring them to England. He he never really supported Margaret in her political role, which she was never willing to entirely abandon as regent of Scotland. Uh, And I think here was missed a fantastic opportunity for a Tudor brother and sister to rule effectively the whole of the British Isles. And Henry completely blew it. It, Eventually Margaret, Margaret, threw in her lot with the Duke of Albany. She did come down to London for a year. I've just been writing about this because she felt it necessary to flee in the autumn of 1515. Um, She was pregnant again at the time with her only child, by Angus, a daughter, Lady Margaret Douglas, who would have her own role to play in the politics of England and Scotland later on and was the mother of Lord Darnley, the uh, second husband of Mary, Queen of Scots. So little James V, Margaret's son, was left in Scotland under the care of various regents with his education not very well looked after during much of the time. The younger son, Alexander, died at the age of two. um, Margaret was heartbroken. She wasn't, of course, with him when he died. Uh, She'd been deprived guardianship of her children anyhow. So she she had a most dramatic and difficult life uh, and with a brother who was very on again and off again in his support of her. And eventually... When she threw in her lot with the Duke of Albany, um, Henry was appalled and more or less cast her off. They had never really been reconciled um, at the time of his death, though Margaret had um, used her influence to try and maintain peace between England and, and Scotland throughout the 1520s and 30s. And her role in this isn't very well understood. Um, there's been a lot of exploration of her letters by some by an English scholar recently, and I'll be. Using Using some of what emerges from this in, in, in the book. But I, I think the point to make here is that Henry always seems to have had a dubious attitude towards his sister from the moment she became titular Queen of Scots. And he, he could have supported her in many more positive ways than he actually did. He never recognised her son, James V, as heir. I mean, you have all this complete sort of crisis in England in the 1530s because Henry VIII hasn't got a male heir but he had a perfectly good one in a nephew in Scotland Uh, and but unlike the French kings who were more than happy for their thrones to pass to more distant cousins and people of that sort Henry was such an egotist I think that he was determined that it would be an heir of his body. He did occasionally refer to James V as you know, perhaps being um, a possible heir, but he never nominated him as such. And um, when Margaret died in Scotland in 1541, she had not seen her brother since 1517. So so theirs is a, a fractious, contentious uh, and very competitive relationship, uh, and one in which, of course, she won subsequently, albeit a lot later, because it is her line that came south as in the person of James VI the, the and, and first of Scotland um, who was doubly descended from Margaret Tudor both through his mother Mary Queen of Scots uh, well, and on the other side um, from uh, his, his father and, and grandmother Darnley and Margaret Douglas so uh, it's an interesting story and I'll be writing more about it as I go along If you're a fan of Tudor history come join us at All Things Tudor a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group and, of course, answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. But the next thing I'll, I'll switch to just now, because I mentioned the 1530s, so we, we should move on a bit, <laughs> is the um, other major sibling Tudor rivalry, which is between Mary the first and her sister Elizabeth. Uh, And that, in fact, is much later in development than perhaps some people might perceive. I mean, it it, it generally, I think, perceived that that somehow they couldn't get on and couldn't stand each other and that this must go back to the earliest days of Elizabeth's childhood. But that isn't true. It's certain that, that Mary had a miserable time after her father's divorce from Catherine of Aragon and her mother's subsequent death. And that she was moved into Elizabeth's household, uh, where she was you know, made to understand that she had a very inferior role. Uh, but um, when Anne Boleyn was executed and Jane Seymour became queen, Mary was occasionally uh, allowed to return to court. And her certainly her corner was fought more by Henry's subsequent wives though I don't think she, I think she never trusted uh, her father again. I think she feared him, but I, don't, I think any affection she'd had for him was probably long gone. But Mary and Elizabeth and Edward um, often spent time together in the same houses because while Henry VIII was very keen on uh, spending money on himself, he was less inclined to do so on his offspring, and it was uh, an economy. to to have them in in the same household. They they weren't always together, but they did pass considerable periods of time in each other's company. And Mary was probably for good many years the only real mother figure that either Elizabeth or or Edward had, and she doesn't get much um, recognition for this. Uh, And in fact, she does not at this stage seem to have held Elizabeth's birth and the fact that she was Anne Boleyn's daughter against her. And she um, encouraged the child in in various ways, including her education, and wrote positively about her to her father, Henry VIII. And we can see, in fact, even after Henry's death, into probably the early 1550s, though we don't know precisely when this particular correspondence was dated, that Elizabeth and Mary were still on quite cordial terms. They, They had separate households Um, they were both left extremely wealthy women by their father's will he may not have treated them well during their lifetime but he he did leave them amongst the greatest landowners in in England Um, they were both you know a business in their own right with with large households financial controllers and all the sort of trappings of 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 a business and Up until the early 1550s, they, as I said, were still obviously enjoying quite good relationship, even if they didn't see each other very much, Mary and Elizabeth, because they exchanged servants and wrote about this to each other. And there's a rather charming letter that um, Elizabeth wrote to Mary at this time, saying uh, that she was sorry to hear that she was unwell again and referring to the fact that it is your old guest that has come to visit you which clearly indicates that she Mary had terrible menstrual problems. Uh, And it's quite clear from this letter that that Elizabeth knew about this. And, uh, you know, this is not the kind of thing you would write in a letter to someone to whom you were not reasonably close, I think. Uh, And so uh, it, it was a relationship that had been perfectly cordial and positive until about the time that Mary became queen. And then everything between the sisters started to change Uh, because, for one thing, Elizabeth was a lot younger. She was in better health and probably better looking than than Mary. Um, She she was also Mary's heir. Uh, And Mary knew well herself how difficult it was to be second person in the kingdom because she had been to her brother, Edward VI, and his death was unexpected um, to both women. Uh, And of course, his attempts to cut them out of the succession into which they had been replaced by their father in the mid-1540s, brought Lady Jane Grey briefly, not to the throne, but certainly to the title of queen. Perhaps because Mary was looking to marry and was, um, if not under the influence, certainly giving the ear to Simon Renard, the imperial ambassador who was trying to arrange for Mary to marry his master's son, Philip of Spain, a marriage which did, of course, take place. Uh, And uh, Elizabeth uh, eventually left court at around Christmas, 1553, in what seems to have been um, slightly distant circumstances. So Mary gave her a gift of beautiful furs when she left, which I would have thought is not something you do to someone you heartily dislike. Uh, But there were, of course, on Mary's side, concerns about Elizabeth's religious views. Elizabeth attended mass and uh, conformed outwardly to Catholicism during her sister's reign. But it was not the belief in which she had been brought up. Uh, And it did undoubtedly bring a wedge between them, which was of quite considerable significance. And of course, I've always thought the adult Elizabeth probably reminded Mary of Anne Boleyn. Um, While she was a child, I think Mary could have overlooked the connection. But as an adult, she couldn't. And of course, Elizabeth became embroiled in various revolts in Mary's reign, the most significant of which was in early 1554 before Mary was actually married to Philip of Spain uh, and and was led by Sir Thomas Wyatt. And it's fairly clear that Elizabeth knew about this, though again, made no comment on it one way or the other, uh, and that she failed to inform her sister. And I don't think Mary ever really forgave her for that. It, it, if you like, crystallised a number of of suspicions and resentments and a hostility that, that may have been to some degree innate, but which had been suppressed for many years. And, of course, Elizabeth was was arrested, was confined to the Tower of London, though, you know, the impression is often given in historical novels and that she was shoved in some dungeon. In fact, she was put in the royal apartments and had, you know, a fleet of servants and people like that around her. And eventually she was allowed to leave and moved to house arrest in Woodstock, which was one of the older medieval palaces. Uh, And finally, she was brought back to court when Mary very sadly thought she was pregnant um, because Mary wanted her there to to witness a birth if there was one. Of course, there wasn't one because there wasn't a pregnancy. Uh, False pregnancies were not uncommon in a gynecologically ignorant age. And Mary I was certainly not the only woman who who ever suffered from this. But uh, Elizabeth was returned to court. The sisters met again in an uncomfortable interview at Hampton Court Elizabeth was introduced to Philip, uh, Mary's husband, who of course subsequently considered marrying her himself when his wife died in 1558. Relations were restored, but never more than fairly frosty. And they saw each other for the last time in in the summer of 1558, before before Mary died. But of course, Mary, um, before she died, did acknowledge formally her sister as her heir, which must have taken, I think, some doing, if you think about what Mary had suffered in the years that that Anne Boleyn was uh, wife of Henry VIII. Uh, And it was a responsible thing to do. Elizabeth, of course, never nominated an heir. Um, uh, And and Mary had also handed over some of her jewels uh, to her sister via her lady-in-waiting Jane Dormer. So I think if there was a rapprochement, it was perhaps more on Mary's side, suspicious as she was, than on Elizabeth's. And Elizabeth's resentment of Mary grew, I think, after Mary's death. Uh, She never forgave her for what she thought was, was unwarranted treatment and of course the blackening of Mary's memory started during Elizabeth's reign and Elizabeth failed signally to acknowledge many of the um, things that she owed Mary, you know, an exchequer that had been revamped and reorganised, uh, new customs and excise duties that actually worked and brought in money for the crown, um, various other um improvements such as that to the British to the English Navy though, though that of course had been encouraged by Philip of Spain for his own purposes but nevertheless there were things put in train in terms of local government and 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 other key aspects of, of rule during Mary's reign which Elizabeth never acknowledged and and her her supporters don't acknowledge to this day incidentally d- despite the efforts of many historians not just me but many others and, and some fine new young scholars who are working on Mary in this country country now. Um, It is still a hard battle to be fought. But it was a a very genuine sibling rivalry, I think. And, um, you know, if anyone is interested in these things, they are covered in, to some degree, in a number of my books. And I'm particularly looking forward to bringing the story of Margaret Tudor and Henry VIII towards a wider audience. Hopefully, when my book is published in a couple of years.
0: I really look forward to that. I do have one question. Why do you believe Henry left Margaret's heirs out of the line of secession?
1: There was a, a sort of long standing um, concern about. Scotland and England being united. And he, it was raised even when um Henry VII arranged the marriage treaty for, for Margaret and, and James IV. But Henry didn't the seventh didn't see it as a great problem because he thought England being the larger country would 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 sort of be the senior partner, which was, of course, the truth, whether justified or, or not. Uh, and and I think it was this unwillingness to accept the fact that his sisters' heirs could become rulers in England. Henry VIII was a strange man in many ways. Um, and I I think it was just uh, an innate prejudice on his part that Scotland was inferior
0: and that he was not going to give his nephew the opportunity to, to take his crown. Well, thank you. You have just been a brilliant guest, and you are welcome to come back at any time. Thank you. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Deb.
0: You've been listening to All Things Tutor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the atl. Thanks for listening and we'll catch y'all later.